welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. If you're listening to this, then you've no doubt already heard our summary of Vigeland Saga, and you're ready for the judgments. Well, or they decided not to listen to the summary at all, and have just jumped right to the judgments. <laughs> well, that's very optimistic of you. Why would you say something like that? I'm just offering an alternative to your rather speculative opening. Speculative. Oh, how kind of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm not sure why someone would want to ignore a summary episode. I mean, there's so much good extemporaneous <laughs> chatter and uh, quite a bit of nonsense in those episodes to entertain and inform the people. Why skip it? <laughs> the people. <laughs> of course there is. I take it back. There's no way anyone would be listening to a judgment episode without first checking out the summary. It's practically impossible. One might even say inconceivable. Okay. I see what you did there. It's a nice callback. I did it last time. You can do it this time. I'm kind of embarrassed, actually. <laughs> but I just want to prove that you're not the only one who can drop a Princess Bride reference into this podcast. Indeed. Uh, now, no more of that in this episode because we've got serious work to do. I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? Ah, see? <laughs> I, knew, I knew you couldn't let that alone. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I have a, a great gift for rhymes. Yes, yes. Some of the time. <laughs> Excellent, John. Well played. Thank you. All right. Now that we've got that. I assumed you were feeding that to me on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're done with that. We okay. can begin. We At last. We can begin this thing. Uh, so we've got some unfinished business from the summary episode that we need to take care of before we can start slinging judgments around the place. Do we? Yeah. Um, remember teasing the audience every five minutes with promises of what we'll be covering at the start of the judgment section? Oh, yeah. We... <laughs> I, I listened to it when uh, I was editing. We kind of did that a lot, didn't we? Well, I mean, I don't recall doing it myself. Um, <laughs> but you kept on saying there was something special coming in the Judgment episode. Well, special may be a bit strong. I don't think I said we had something special coming. Uh, I just didn't want to overwhelm the summary episode with a lengthy digression. Okay. Yeah. You didn't. Now we've arrived at the Judgment episode. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, let's hear what kind of brilliant insight you have to offer on Vigeland's saga. Now, see, you're, you're just building this up way too much. I don't, I'm not going to be able to live up to the expectations you're setting up here, John. Let's okay, if you down. don't start explaining whatever it is you want to explain, I'm going to shut this whole thing down and go drink by myself. Oh, you're going to drink from your Saga thing mug? <laughs> now that you mention it, yes, actually. Oh, uh, but do not turn this into a plug for the Saga thing gift shop. Oh, I wouldn't dare do that. Every, you know, everybody already knows that they can, uh, they can get their shirts and mugs uh -huh. and other paraphernalia from our store. A nice, uh, saga thing shirt with, uh, some slogans on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can access those at our, uh, our website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. But like I said, they know. I'm that. serious. I, I'll leave you staring at a blank screen. Start, <laughs> start talking about Kettlerid and Vigland, medieval romances and marriage stuff, or we are done. <laughs> It's not so much marriages that uh, interest me, actually. It's how people go about getting married. Oh, that's right. Uh, now, you've mentioned before that you've done some work with medieval Icelandic betrothal customs, which mm -hmm. uh, explains why you got so excited about this saga in particular. Absolutely. Although, like we said in the summary episode, neither of us had ever read Vigeland Saga before. So mm -hmm. I was really surprised, very pleasantly surprised, in fact, to see all these things that I've been learning about, um, about those betrothal customs. They were all coming into play in Vigeland Saga. Right. Now, we've talked about this betrothal stuff before, or at least we've referenced it before. Mm -hmm. But we've never quite seen it covered as exhaustively as this saga covers it. Right. I, I think we talked about marriage arrangements in Henthorir Saga, uh, where we saw Thorkel Scarf helping Herstein, uh, 
uh, arrange a marriage to Thurid, uh, the daughter of Gunnar Hlifarsson. I can't believe I remember these names. Or do I? <laughs> uh, right, that's the saga brain in action. I remember that one too. Uh, mm-hmm. Gunnar was pulled out of his house in the middle of a cold night. Yes. And they wouldn't let him back in until he'd agreed to marry Thurid to Herstein. Exactly. And this was all because Herstein needed support in the region to go up against Henthor and Tungul Ad. Man, that was a great saga. And I hadn't read that one before either. Well, that's why we do the podcast. Yeah, it's good stuff. Now, uh, in the kind of betrothal we saw in Henthor's saga between Herstein and Thorid, it's one of those more typical medieval Icelandic betrothal examples. In mm-hmm. fact, it's pretty typical of all early medieval betrothal practices in general. So it's also – it's not too unusual in some parts of the world today. I mean – Depending on where you live, arranged marriages are actually still quite common in parts of the world. Oh, absolutely. But uh, this isn't the case in most Western cultures today. Now that I'm starting to get warmed up on this subject of betrothal customs, I, I feel a rather lengthy digression coming on. Uh, maybe maybe a saga brief is actually in order for this one. It's actually not a bad idea. But in these sagas, I mean, so much of the narrative action of the sagas is driven by these the machinations around marriage arrangements – and their success or failure usually determines the direction an individual character's life is going to take. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I guess if you're willing, and I, it sounds like you are, we should record mm. a saga brief about marriage in medieval Iceland sometime soon. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. That'll give us both the time we need, uh, me the time I need to kind of set up and explain the whole consent theory thing and how Christianity changed our notions of love and marriage. Sure. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, I think it could be interesting. Uh, but in the meantime, why don't you just for now explain how all this relates to Vigeland's saga? Okay. Briefly. Well, so, briefly. As brief as I can. So, Vigeland Saga is, uh, like we said, a 15th century text written in the 15th century, mm-hmm. or so we believe. Um, and, and that's significant for the author's handling of betrothal customs in the saga, because it's around this time that Iceland starts to catch up with the rest of Europe in terms of understanding marriage as a sacrament between two people. See, now this is starting to sound complicated. No, it's, it's really not. You understand how arranged marriages work, right? Sure. I mean, they're typically political arrangements – like the one we saw in Henthor Saga. Exactly. And in that Henthor Saga example that we just talked about, uh, where was Thurid in, in the arrangement? Was she outside with them? Oh, yeah. She's, she's almost irrelevant to the proceedings. Absolutely. It's just two men arranging and then she's at that point for all intents and purposes, uh, mm-hmm. married, right? Well, right. this starts to change. Um, in the 12th century, the church decided that this whole custom of arranged marriages is deeply flawed. Um, and despite all the things we could say about the Christian church uh, or the Catholic church and its relationship to women, um, this is an example where they actually step up and, and defend women's rights to some degree. Right. Although um, inadvertently, right? I mean, not because they have the sort of enlightened view of uh, women, more to do with protecting the souls of those who would engage in marriages that were not based on consent. Sure. And there's also a political angle that we can get into, mm-hmm. but that's all stuff for the saga brief. Sorry. Um for now, let's just say that the church was invested in changing the traditional path to marriage. Yeah, well, we should at least say that it was very controversial. Incredibly controversial. And old habits die very hard. Whatever the case, the church promoted a theory of consent, which argued that a marriage in which both parties don't agree to the arrangement would be invalid. Uh, <laughs> uh, if I may for a moment. I don't know why you're laughing, uh, but go ahead. I'm just going to point out that there is an analogous situation in The Princess Bride. Oh, great. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I was you know, I was actually worried that this might happen, but uh-huh. you go ahead. It does work. Yes, it does. Uh, I think it's a fine illustration of what you're talking about, actually. It is. Uh, okay, so 
Um, in case there's anyone out there who is so benighted that they haven't seen The Princess Bride, um, Buttercup, the Princess Buttercup, is forced to marry Prince Humperdinck. Yes, she is. And she even goes through the whole ceremony. Uh, marriage is a famous uh-huh. quote that we say in our house what all the time. What brings us together today. <laughs> yes. Uh, she goes through the whole ceremony with him in front of a priest and, and everything. It's a complete exactly. marriage ceremony. Right. And she's pretty certain that she's married after the ceremony ends, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that she wasn't ever going to consent to the marriage on her own. Which is exactly the point. Right. And that's what Wesley points out to her, right? She never said the words. And what words are these? Haven't you seen the movie? Yeah, I did. I'm playing along. She never said, I do. Uh-huh. Which means she never consented. Never consented. Which means she's not actually married according to the new model of marriage. It's brilliant. This is basically how consent See? theory works. And mm-hmm. all of you who have seen Princess Bride already know all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and this, I think, is the agenda of the Vigelin Saga author. He's participating in a culture that has adopted the romance narratives that promote consent theory. Okay, so do you think he's doing this, this, this author is doing this on purpose? Is there, in other words, is there actually a consent theory agenda mm. behind this saga? That's a good or question. Or does the author pick up that motif from the romance narrative he's modeling the saga on? Well, I think it's hard to say for sure, but uh, given the fact that there is a developing interest in consent theory in Iceland and in Icelandic literature right around the time that this text was written, tells me that he must have a very clear agenda. Hmm. I mean, think about how heavily he presses the issue throughout this saga. We start with the love of Olaf and Thorgrim. They're not supposed to be together, but they basically swear oaths to each other, affirming a bond of love between them that, as it turns out, can't be broken. And if you read the whole thing for yourself, you'll see poetry and oaths kind of being sworn and, and an emphasis on those things. And this all frustrates the old world order when her father tries to arrange a marriage for her. And and that all stimulates the the action of the text. And when we get to Vigeland's generation, we run into the same exact thing. And here he lays it on even more thick in the poetry and in the digressions about the nature of true love that we talked about last time. Right. And unlike other sagas where marriage rights are an issue, uh, this one is actually ending happily. Ending happily with a, a with marriages, right? There's a whole slew right. of marriages that all disregard the plans of the older generations. The, the father's wishes simply don't matter here, which I think is why everything ends on a happy note. The younger generation decides everything for themselves. It's really cool. It's a cool well, moment it's, in it's actually literature. It actually even goes beyond that, right? I mean, the father's generation uh, comes around, and in the end, they're the ones machinating behind the scenes to make sure that Kettlerid and Viglund can end up together. Sure. That will right? be it's, more it's enlightened her father, Right. It's her father, his father, and then her father's his father's brother who all That's come right. together and kind of arrange this uh, for them. Once they've been convinced of the rightness of love as a sort of precursor to marriage. Sure, sure. And contrasting this is, is Thorbjorg and, and Kettle, who throughout mm-hmm. the thing are, are angry about uh, failed arrangements, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much great material here. It, it just fits perfectly with the social, political, and religious developments of the 15th century in Iceland. Um, mm-hmm. th- and I find that there's actually enough here to warrant an article on the subject. Really? Yeah. You're, you're going to, you're going to do an article about consent theory and Viglundsag? Absolutely. I've already nice. started and I, I'm really excited about it. It lets me get back to some of the stuff I was doing in grad school about consent theory in a, in a miracle poem of the Virgin Mary. Oh, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't wait to write this thing. And, uh, if academic publishing process goes well, you can look for this article sometime in the year 2066 or so. <laughs> You're not bitter at all, are you? <laughs> It it does take a while sometimes, yes. Oh, it's it? frustratingly long, but I do understand the process, so who am I to complain about it? 
Uh, but let's not dwell any longer on consent theory here. I think we've done our job. Let's uh, return to Vigland's saga and uh, let's get to our judgments. Best Bloodshed. All right, Best Bloodshed. So, uh, as always, what we're looking for here are examples of uh, really entertaining violence. Yeah. We've said before, not necessarily a killing, but it has to be a violent act. Ideally, blood spilled, but a, yeah. a good a good beating or even a good open handed slap can sometimes yeah, exactly. win the we, day. We will accept a bruising, uh, right? Now, for a relatively short saga, we've got some good options this time out, and so there's actually a you few really that we're so? not including. Yeah, some basic stuff. Okay. Um, I think we're we're gonna skip things like uh, Thorgrim killing Grim at at the uh, at Harold's dinner. Yeah, um, just a very basic killing in which nobody gets really excited about it. Uh, we can <laughs> skip that first ambush at the haystacks because. Really, nobody of any note dies. We lose three red shirts, mm-hmm. um, and you know it all sort of goes nowhere. Uh, but I think we've got several good options, nevertheless. Do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I, I unlike you, I don't think that there are many great examples in in oh, here of, of best bloodshed. Hey, we got um, fun ones in here. No, I've only got two really, and one of them's not that great. <laughs> yeah, but I know what you've got, and you've got a great one. Yeah, so let's start with the, um, this is a slightly unusual, I think it's a first for Best Bloodshed. Now mm-hmm. we have, we have talked about animals, uh, in Best Bloodshed <laughs> before, um, but this is a Best Bloodshed between two animals, not, uh, right. not a seal biting someone, but this case, uh, we've got two horses. Um, so if you remember from the previous episode, we talked about, uh, Yellow Dun and Blackie, uh, the horses of- Lekur and Brunin, I think we yes. used. Oh, that's what we called them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Yellow Dun and, and Blackie is what we'll call them today. <laughs> <laughs> so uh Vigland Stallion is uh is yellow done and he's going to fight with the Foss brothers that's Einar and Yokel's horse and that is uh Blackie. And as the saga says it uh carried on frightfully which I think is a great turn of phrase. <laughs> the the battle carried on frightfully. The the brothers got ready to accompany it. Vigland Stallion yellow done then came out and as soon as it came into the paddock it kept circling, finally raising both front legs and ramming them into Blackie's muzzle with such force that all its incisors were knocked out. Yellow Dun then made for Blackie's <laughs> haunches with its teeth and ripped a gaping hole in the body. Blackie fell down dead. And when Yokel and Einar saw that, they ran for their weapons and we got more fighting and stuff like that. Oh, but come on. Come on. That's a... Mm-hmm. I mean, what a technique. Yes. What a technique. That is, that is rope-a-dope of the finest order. <laughs> Excellent horse fighting. That is floating um, like a butterfly, stinging like a bee. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that this saga is really good for. Um, it, the descriptions. It goes a lot further, I think. Cruelty than, to animals. Than, well, not just cruelty <laughs> to animals. But there's a lot of detail in that one. Um, they, they really play out the scene a lot more than you see mm-hmm. in a lot of other sagas. So yeah, you I get like a very it. clear visual of how this particular horse fight works. Yeah. When usually it's just described as sort of two horses running at, at each other and banging into each other a bunch of times. Right. Or they just say uh, there was a horse fight, and one right, of them right. lost. Yeah, no, I I like that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got it's not quite as violent, but uh, I like the I like what's going on here. Um, this is uh, at the games that occur during yes. the lead up to the uh, violence between Vigland and Kellerid's brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is during a ball game. On one occasion, it happened that Viglund knocked the ball past Yokel. He got angry, and when he got hold of the ball, he struck Viglin's face so hard with it that his eyebrows split open. Trousty tore off a piece of his shirt and wound it around Viglin's brow. That's nice of him. Now, yeah, now I just like the 
yeah, it's a good sports injury. Um, it's not, you know, sort of earth shaking by any means, but it leads to a great, a great exchange with their father when they get home, which we'll talk about later during, yeah. uh, witticisms, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the idea of a kind of, you know, a minor sports injury like that, but one that we know is sort of the first, the first bit of snow in the avalanche. Oh, yeah. You know, where you sort of, you know that, that all kinds of things are going to come to pass now because of this slight. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that comes to pass is actually my uh, my second and and somewhat less impressive uh, bloodshed. <laughs> oh, but I'm glad you're including it. It's not it's not even actually a bloodshed, but I I do like this one because we don't get this kind of description. Um, typically speaking, in the these little battles between them, um, the mm-hmm. next day they have another set of games, and um, it says when it was least expected, Vigland struck Yokel's brow with the ball so that it split open. Yokel sought to strike Vigeland with the bat, but he ducked, and instead he knocked Yokel down onto the ice so that he lost consciousness. The men then separated them, and each side went home. Yokel was not able to get on a horse by himself, and he was carried home on a makeshift litter. He recovered quickly. So mm-hmm. Yokel's got stars in right. his eyes. Uh, right. he, a, st- he's, a stinger, as they say in football. Is that what it is? I think he's got a, a, a concussion is what <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, that's what they used to call a concussion. Oh, that's what they used to. Now they call a stinger. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that like a pinched nerve or something like that? Well, you know that too. But they would just – oh, get his bell rung. Excuse yes, me. he got that's his right. bell rung. That's exactly that's right. right. So uh, uh, this is, to my knowledge, the the first description of uh, of an actual concussion that we've come across. Yeah. yeah, no, it's pretty clearly a concussion. I mean, he's the, – the hit to the head and then being knocked down on the ice. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you the only concussion I've ever had in my life happened the only time I ever tried to skate Is that right? uh, on ice. Uh, my feet went up in front of me and I went down and hit the ice uh, skull first. And oh, wow. that was a concussion, I can tell you. It was a while before I wasn't seeing double. And were you uh, carried home by your friends on a makeshift beer? Uh, no, I was uh, laughed at scornfully until I got up under my own power and staggered off the ice. Uh, life in Queens sounds great. <laughs> this was actually at the University of Connecticut. Oh, <laughs> Back when I knew you, I'm glad I wasn't there laughing uh-huh. at you. Uh, so yes, no, that's a, so I'm very familiar with how a head hitting ice can lead to just this kind of injury. Oh, that's great. That's great. So, uh, what's your, uh, your next? Uh, well, candidates? I mean, I think we know that we can't leave out the, uh, the, the absolute slaughter. Oh, yeah. At the haystack during the second ambush. Oh, absolutely. But I, uh, and when we have what? A total of, uh, 10 or so men killed. Yeah, it's 10. Uh, but I want to focus on uh, just one uh, battle. Mm-hmm. And this is the battle between Yokel, the conclusion of this sort of ongoing uh, battle between Yokel and Vigeland. Now, remember, Vigeland, leading into this battle, has already been wounded by Hawken before killing Hawken. Right. Uh, where Yokel has been allowed to rest this entire time. And so he's fresh going into mm-hmm. the fight. And Vigeland's about to show what kind of man he truly is. That's right. Um, a, an ambidextrous man. <laughs> uh, Viglund realized that he could not continue to fight against Yokel on account of his wounds and his exhaustion. Therefore, he threw up his shield and his axe, and since he could fight equally well with either hand, he caught the shield in his right hand and the axe with the left. Yokel could not follow this maneuver, and Viglund cut off his right arm all the way to the elbow. Yokel then got away. Viglund was not able to pursue him, and he reached for one of the many spears lying near him and hurled it after Yokel. The spear struck him between his shoulders and came out in front through the chest. Then Yokel fell down, dead. Mm. Now that, that is a hell of a killer. Yeah. That's a saga author who's read plenty of sagas and thought to himself, mm-hmm. I think I can do this. I think I, know what, <laughs> I think I know what we need here in this climactic scene. 
Right. Yeah. Right. It's good. And you An know, absolutely ostentatious display of jugglery during a battle. Yeah. It's, it's almost, it's, it's as much dance as battle technique. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good drama. And I don't think yeah. uh, there's any reason to debate this one. Uh, that's got to be the clear winner. It's one of the cooler things we've oh, seen. Oh, boy. I, I would love to have the fight between the two horses win it because. I know. You know, we, we really haven't had one of those yet, and it's a good horse fight. Yeah. But I agree. I mean, a juggling an axe in mid-battle and getting a swipe left-handed, mm-hmm. as a lefty myself, I have to say, I'm really impressed with this one. Uh, I say it's got to be Vigland killing Yokel. I would love to see you try that. <laughs> Give me an axe and about 20 practice steps. <laughs> All right. Body, Body count. count. So the body count for this one was actually, I think, pretty easy. Uh, very easy yeah, to follow. Yeah, straightforward. The, the saga author was very helpful in even uh, counting them <laughs> for us at times. Um, yeah. There, there's that one, uh, you know, in that ambush scene where so many people die. Uh, right. He, well, that's he, really the meat of our body count. This yeah. Episode. But he, he tallied them for us because I was like keeping a careful track and trying to guess. And, <laughs> and then he says, ah, 10 people died there. Right. Um, so, yeah, uh, my total was uh, an easy 17 for this saga. No. Now, I find that fascinating. I've also got 17. Okay. So we should be able to just, you know, have a quick bro hug and move on to the next yeah. uh, section. Uh, but so the quick body count, uh, aside from Grimm dying early in the saga when Thorgrim uh, kills Runs him, him through, yeah. Um, we've basically got men killed in this series of conflicts between um, Vigland and the men of False. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have three men killed at the horse fight the first time. Yep. Uh, one of Viglund's men and two of Fosses. Right. Well, hey, uh, can I can I ask? Did you count the the two horses and two oxen? Because that would bring us up to uh, twenty one. I I noted them, okay. but I did not count them because uh, we have not traditionally counted the deaths of animals. Well, we add not them even as a, named ones. Yeah, well, we we add them as a supplement uh, often. Right. Uh, and then three men of Foss killed in the first ambush attempt at the uh, haystacks. haystacks. And then seven more men of Foss killed, along with Einar, Hawken, and Jokel, mm-hmm. uh, in the second ambush. Yes, so that's... Uh, that does make 17. It does, so it's easy. Now, that's the, the our reason shortest... that I find it interesting that you uh, also what? came up with 17 yeah. is that we also have uh, Ingeborg, uh, the first wife of Earl Kettle. Oh, yeah. Um, and the first wife of Helgi, uh, who isn't named, both of whom apparently die uh, Ingebjorg is explicitly said to have died during childbirth and Helgi's first wife uh, dies uh, apparently uh, prematurely okay um, so my question is given that in the past couple of episodes you've given me endless grief for not <laughs> counting women who died in childbirth why have you suddenly decided to turn your back on women who die in childbirth uh, there was one instance where I <laughs> argued for a woman dying in childbirth, and that's because we met her, we hung out with her, and her death was important for the movement of the saga. In this case, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't even know who Helgi is. I'm looking at my little genealogy. He appears Are to you be kidding me? the brother of Thorgrim and Sigrid. Yes. Uh, outside of that, I don't really know or care who he is. He's Thord of the East Fjords. Oh, that's right. He's the one that comes at the end and yes. saves the day. What a nice yes. fella. <laughs> He's quite important, actually. Okay, but have we ever met his wife? Um, yes, she's the dead woman in question. 
I know. Do we spend any time with her? Does the narrative no. make a big dealer? No. Therefore, we don't count her. She's just a incidental oh, character. Oh, look at you now. I believe incidental. you called me heartless at one point. The term you used was heartless for not counting women who died in childbirth. No. And now here you are turning your back on women just because they aren't given no. a uh, front and center role in the saga. It's not about being front and center. It's about having a role. You must have a role in order to get counted. Well. I'm I'm going to I'm going to let this go because I think that um, these are not countable deaths, uh, not it, it because of any desire to remove women who die in childbirth from these discussions, but because <laughs> uh, it was originally intended to be people who were sort of killed unnaturally, uh, and unfortunately, it's a sort of truism of the Middle Ages and of of really any period before uh, anesthetics, penicillin, and. Um, <laughs> Are you really lecturing uh, us on this now? Antiseptics, uh, that women died in childbirth quite frequently. Yes, they did. I just think it's funny that you're suddenly paying attention to these things, which means I've done my job. <laughs> I, I've gotten you to finally right. pay attention the conversation to, has taken place. to the plight of women in uh-huh. uh, the Icelandic sagas. Uh-huh. Uh, the plight of women that you attempted to gloss over without discussion. Well, these ones aren't important. <laughs> 17 is our body count. And two horses and two oxen. Nicknames. So nicknames is usually your thing, and uh, you mm-hmm. you make a habit of uh, digging into the Icelandic dictionaries and other texts and finding out who these people are and what their nicknames. Oh, I love a good nickname story. May or may not mean, and I, frankly, I think you make most of it up. But uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. <laughs> well, sit back, sit right back, and you'll hear a tale. Uh, <laughs> so this is actually not uh, one of the richest sagas for nicknames, and we've got a couple of good ones. But um, I think, as you'll see, they're mostly just descriptors, sort of straight ahead descriptors. Yeah. Um, so we've got uh, straightforward names. Viglund is called Viglund the Handsome. Um, now, I said during the summary episode that I was disappointed that Viglund lacks the cool nicknames of Bjorn, Champion of the Hitterdal People, Gunlog, Serpent Tongue, Hall for Troublesome Poet. A lot of Thingmen of mine um, are mentioning there. Uh, one of those, I think, is a Thingman of yours. <laughs> um, he, he does actually have a nickname, uh, sort of. But it's generic and it doesn't catch on. It's only mentioned once. Uh, yeah. It's Kettlerid uh, calls him Viglum the Handsome at one point. So it's really more of a flirtation than an illegit nickname. But it does get in on technicality because somebody does call him the Handsome. Okay. Um, we've got uh, Gunlog the Boisterous and his brother Sigurd the Wise. Uh, these are both straightforward nicknames that get used a fair amount in the sagas. Um, they show up in other sagas as well pretty frequently. The only point I make about either one is that Gunlog's boisterousness doesn't mean that he's unruly or unmanageable, which is usually what that nickname means. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it just means that he's high-spirited. Okay. Uh, he's actually quite level-headed, and he conducts himself well throughout the saga. He even ends up married to the heiress to the uh, Rogaland earldom. It's a uh, pretty good move. There you go, because he mm-hmm. ends up married to Helgi's daughter, and Helgi inherits the earldom, although he never actually gets it because Harold is being spiteful. Now, is it possible with uh, Sigurd the Wise that we've got like a little John of Robin Hood fame situation that Sigurd is actually really, really dumb, kind of just walks around drooling? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're never given that impression. It's more he's, of a joke. He, no, he makes oaths, sticks to them. He's a wise, wise man. Good guy. All right. Well, I'll choose him as thing. Uh, right. We have Olaf the Radiant. Um, Olaf's nickname is Gesli, uh, which translates as a uh, ray or a beam of light. Uh, which the additional with the additional verb meaning of to beam or radiate out. So as a name, the radiant makes sense as a translation. Okay. But 
I just want to mention in passing that the word literally means a beam or staff of wood. So, although its metaphorical use takes over and it's far more common, there's the outside chance that this is another reference like Odni Isle Candle, that beam refers to Olaf's figure rather than her luminosity. I'm going to go ahead and... She's a stick. It's possible, but... But it probably just means radiant. I'm going to go with radiant there. Especially given when this is written and the kind of things, the the attributes to women in romances... The f- yeah. I don't think he's calling her stick. I think it's right. This is not an olive oil situation, especially because Olaf is uh, is the one of the coolest women that we've encountered. Absolutely true. Um, she and is is sufficiently sort of large framed enough that she's mistaken for a man at one point when she dresses up in a dark cloak. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So probably not a stick of wood. Very good at uh, sewing, though. Very absolutely. Very good at uh, Thorgrim the Elegant. Uh, this is Pruthi again. Uh, this is the second saga in a row with that nickname, uh, which means fine or magnificent, as we talked about last time. In Bjorn the Hitterdal Champion saga, there was some ambiguity about its use. Uh, I mentioned that it, it seemed to refer to a person's appearance and bearing as opposed to an earned reputation for a noble character. Mm-hmm. Now, in Thorgrim's case, the ambiguity is removed. It's made clear that the elegant is a mocking nickname. It's meant to poke fun at Thorgrim's rapid rise in the world from his relatively humble origins to being a king's favorite. So it's a mockery nickname. It isn't meant seriously. All righty. That's more like what you were saying. You're sort of little John is a giant and that kind of thing. Yes. Um, Thorkel Skin Swathed. That is the nickname that I liked best in this saga. <laughs> I hope this guy wins. Oh, you're tipping your hand on the vote. Oh, sorry. Uh, this is actually just sort of a cameo. Thorkel is more important in the saga of Bard Snofflesoss, hmm. and he, he seems to exist here as a way to link this saga to the literary canon, since relatively few people in this saga are known outside of it. No, and they don't uh, exist in real, real right. life either, right? So right. you can flip through the uh, Book of Settlements all you want, but you're not going to find anyone from this saga in there, uh, at least right. anyone of import. Exactly. Uh, so Thorkel's name... Um, which is not explained in this saga. It's explained in uh, Bard's saga. Refers to his poverty-stricken upbringing. Hmm. In the area where he was raised, homespun cloth was difficult to come by, and so Thorkel was swaddled in seal skins to keep him warm during his first years. Oh, that sounds cozy. Yeah. Uh, Thorkel is not really described in this saga, but I think it's worth just, because Bard's saga is so rich in descriptions, it's worth dipping into Bard's saga for a moment to learn that he, that Thorkel is, quote, Tall, lanky, and long-legged, with long arms and poor proportions. His fingers were long and thin, his face narrow and long, his cheekbones high, and his teeth protruding. He has bulging eyes, a wide mouth, a long neck, a bulbous head, and a thick waist with narrow shoulders. Love it. Overall, a fairly startling-looking man, I think. Uh, and skin swab as a nickname completes the picture of a man who I think is perhaps not entirely human. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if uh, like about him poor nutrition when he was a baby, maybe. Well, fair enough. And then, other than that, other than that short list, all we have is the invented names that Viglin uses for himself and his brother Trousty. Mm-hmm. At one point, they call themselves trouble prone and problem prone. Uh, which are pretty straightforward, and there may be some significance to Viglin's choice to call himself trouble-prone while his brother is problem-prone. You know what uh, uh, Trousty's problem is, is he hangs out with his brother too much. Exactly. No, if I were pushing or reading of these names, it would be exactly that. Mm-hmm. Viglin is the more likely to cause trouble, while Trousty is drawn into conflict on his brother's behalf. Yeah. But I don't honestly, I don't think anything that deep is going on here. I think this is just 
a throwaway set of names. Now, the other set of names they use, Orn and Hraven, uh, these to me are much more interesting. Uh, these are common enough name elements, and you don't have to look far in the sagas for more men named Orn or Hraven. Uh, but they're both animal names. Vigland has chosen the names Eagle and Raven as pseudonyms for himself and his brother. Now, as we talked about in the Crocomile episode, which we just did a while back, uh, these are two of the three beasts of battle referred yeah. to in Germanic poetry, the eagle, the raven, and the wolf. Mm-hmm. Now, for two men who were recently left for dead on a battlefield and lived, I find this to be a really interesting choice of names. Well, that is interesting. Yeah. How clever. I would suggest there's a sly joke being performed in here by the saga author. Mm-hmm. And it makes me like the saga author just a little bit better. He's, he's he pretty clever. Take two men, survivors of the battlefield, uh, and name them Raven and Eagle. I like it. Uh, so those are, our wit- those are our witty nicknames for this saga. What do you think? Well, I think you know what I think. <laughs> Thorkel Skinswath? Thorkel Skinswath. Thorkel Skinswath. Skinswath? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I think... Yeah, I think Thorkel Skinswath is the, the most interesting nickname. And after that description, I don't know, even though it's from another saga, I don't know how we can't give it to him. <laughs> You know, I would love to have Orin and Hraven win it, but uh, I would have to argue that ultimately they're not really nicknames, they're pseudonyms. Yeah, you're just filling time. A, well, that's a different thing. Uh, my point is that I'm going to agree with you and Yay. say that Thorkel Skinswathed needs to take the prize. Excellent. So for only a brief mention in the saga, he manages to walk away with, a, with an award. And we'll get to know him better when we hit Bard Saga. There you go. All right. Congratulations, Thorkel. Notable witticisms. Okay, notable witticisms. We're looking for uh, clever turns of phrase, clever lines from either a figure in the saga or from the narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you've got something to start us off on. I do, uh, though I had I, I got to admit I struggled to find something in this saga. This is one of those later ones. It's very mm-hmm. romantic, and so it kind of loses that witty yeah, edge. It that doesn't we turn like. on. It doesn't turn on those kind of sharp phrases the way you know. the earlier. Sagas like you would do. think after tossing his axe up in the air and switching hands. Uh, that Vigland might have something clever to say, but no. No. Do you mind if I ask you a question? <laughs> In a German accent, no less. That's great. Um, all right. So I am going to start us off with, uh, I think what for me was actually the only notable witticism that I marked in my book. Um, although I did find another. Um, mm-hmm. On first read, I was uh, I was struck by when um, Vigland and Trousty were returning home after the games, and uh, Vigland, if you remember, had uh, oh yes, the head wound. He had yeah. his head wound, and Trousty kind of mm-hmm. wrapped it up with his shirt, so he's got this uh, mm-hmm. a, a bandage on there. They walk through the door, and their father, this this <laughs> Thorgrim, which is a perfect name for him, uh, he is <laughs> Thorgrim, and uh, he's sitting there, uh, just probably whittling. And he looks at his son's <laughs> whittling. I'm guessing. What is he going to do? He's an old guy just sitting there. Yeah, fair it's enough. in my it's in my head. So he says to them, uh, "Welcome back, my son and daughter." <laughs> and uh, Trousty immediately Aww. says, "Which one of us are you calling a woman, father?" Thorgrim says, "It seems to me that the one with the headgear must be the woman." <laughs> to which Vigland <laughs> promptly replies, "I am not a woman." <laughs> hey. <laughs> And he, but he, he um, adds, even though it may seem that I'm not far from being one, which is hilarious. <laughs> He's so direct. Which is great. <laughs> right. And, well, it's, it is a, it's an admission that the bandage, um, the, the, what Thorgrim is referring to here is that, uh, Vigland, he, Vigland's head wrap makes it look like he's wearing a wimple. Yes. 
which in the 15th century was a very common kind of headgear for women. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. Do you want me to say Uh, something about that? Or I thought you were going to (laughs) continue. Just merely an observation. Oh, thank you. Uh, And so he's sort of, he's sort of acknowledging that at the moment he may look Look as if he's sort of dressed in a womanly fashion. Although, but that, he is no woman. And obviously the, the point that Thorgrim's trying to make is that, uh, mm-hmm. you don't take a wound like that and then not do anything, which, uh, right. Vigeland is, uh, he's a very calm and patient individual. So he's not going to act. Um, that's, you think that's why he's saying I'm not far from one is, is Vigeland admitting that he maybe should have acted? No, I think it's, I think he's acknowledging the physical humor of the way he's appearing to his father at this point, mm. sort of acknowledging that his father's what he would regard as a feeble attempt at a little joke at his expense. You think so? Because the it's uh, the very next day that he goes back and actually got, does get his revenge. Oh, but of course, as we see in the sagas over and over again, young men in particular are very vulnerable to these kinds of attacks. Yeah, these taunts. Sure. Uh, uh, being taunted about their manhood by either a woman or an older man um, tends to kind of put them in a position where they're almost forced to act. Okay. Although I get the impression that Viglund probably would have gone back and, you know, hit Yokel the next day anyway. All right. All right so what do you got? Um, well, I've, I've got a pair of ears to hear you read the second of your two choices. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> as we discussed. <laughs> as per our discussion. Uh, but if you want me to go ahead, I no, can no. go ahead. Um, <laughs> now, as impressive as that one is, which is not terribly. <laughs> Um, I, I think we would be remiss in this, our last warrior poet saga, if we didn't, uh, throw a poem in. Um, sure, absolutely. Now, this one may surprise you just a little bit because it's not terribly witty. All right. Bear, bear with. That does surprise me given the category. <laughs> but, uh, just bear with me for a moment. So, um, this is the 11th poem in the saga and, uh, mm-hmm. it's by Vigeland. Vigeland is, he's been separated from his beloved and so he's thinking about her. And the weather was terribly stormy when he composes this poem as he's sitting Aww. on some cargo. He says, Ketelrid bade the young man not to cower in the deep, wildly though the waves crash, wash upon the ship's prow. Take to heart the words, let's be dolty, Trousty, though I am lashed by grief, uttered by Ketelrid. Now, <clears throat> the poem itself, eh, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> here's here's what I like about it, though. As soon as he's done speaking, Trousty says, That's quite remarkable, the way you name Ketelrid at both the beginning and the end of your verse. This is the first time I've ever seen uh, another character remark on the mm-hmm. notable witticism of another character. Right. Like, that was very witty. I really like that now poem, that's... how you put Ketelrid at the beginning and the end. Um, oh, see, now this is interesting. You read that as a sincere compliment, do you? Oh, I, you know what? I read that as uh, maybe not a sincere compliment so much as the author tooting his own horn and saying, look what I just did. Oh, now, see, that's, that's interesting. I read that very differently. How do you read it? Uh, I read that as Trousty mocking his brother's verse. Why would he be mocking his brother's verse? Uh, well, for a number of reasons. One, it's garbage. Um, <laughs> it's it's not a terrible, that, as you just said. Say that to as Beagland's face. You said, as poetry, it's eh. Um, uh, it's, he's, he's saying, oh, I really like the way you start in it. It's almost like complimenting a, a younger brother's finger painting. <laughs> nice try. Nice try. I like how you blended the uh, colors together. <laughs> right. But I mean, this is, but it, you name her at the beginning and end. Well, as we know, right, 
the traditional way to compose verses is to construct elaborate kennings okay. in which you conceal the name of the person you're talking about. Sure, but not so much in the Instead, 15th century. Instead, he's gone ahead and said, you know, Kettlerid is pretty hot. I like Kettlerid. <laughs> is that your poem? <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> Well, that's basically what he said. Well, yeah, but I think uh, one of the things that we – So Trousty, who, as we see later on, is capable of composing much more traditionally complex poetry that great. involving kennings – uh, is kind of saying, yeah, I, I can't help but notice that you began and ended by just shouting out the name of your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, it was, so right. it's, it's pretty that's obvious. nice. If the point of, uh, <laughs> of, of scaldic poetry is to be kind of cryptic, uh, you couldn't be yes. more obvious than, but yes. <laughs> okay, I see your point. I, I see, I suppose this newfangled poetry is well enough for some, Viglund. Maybe, but, but I prefer the traditional forms. But 15th century poetry in, uh, in Iceland is a lot more straightforward. Absolutely. So, uh, um, you know, it's, it's maybe, maybe the author's saying, look what I did. You can begin a poem with a lady's name and <laughs> end it with her name. It's very clever. Oh, gee. Yeah. That's, that's, that's much better. I guess you're not going to choose uh, that one for the, the victor here. <laughs> well, I just, I just, I think Trousty's line is very funny. <laughs> okay. So, uh, do you have uh, anything for us or am I just going to do, I do. I have, all the I heavy have, lifting I have one, here? I have one option. I agree that this is not a saga that is, uh, doubled over with wittable, witty lines, but, um. Wittable? Wittable. <laughs> Wittables. So what I've got is um, a conversation between Kettlerid and Viglund uh, early in their relationship when Viglund is trying to convince Kettlerid to uh, vow herself to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she refuses. Uh, she does love him, but she refuses. And she has sort of several reasons. There are many things speaking against this, she said. First of all, you may not be so inclined when you have grown up. You men are always fickle in such matters. (laughs) She then goes on to point out that her father would object and that it would hurt him and that her mother would object and she's afraid of her. Uh, But she begins by pointing out that Viglund is neither grown up nor constant. She's worried that he Uh, uh, wants to, as they say, hit it and quit it. Wow. (laughs) Is, Is that what they say? In, uh, I think it's about how Viglin would put it. That would actually constitute poetry. To in Viglund. some circles, that's what they say. <laughs> um, but yes, not a uh, not a not an uproarious line, mm-hmm. but a, but a, a a witty bit of repartee from the, yeah. from Kettlerid. So so here's my question. So what do we got? Who who do we give the, the award to? Um, I it's I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's Kettlerid. I'm not terribly impressed. <laughs> to be blunt. Um, I'm I'm comfortable with uh, Thordrim playing on the head head bandage yeah. as a wimple. I think that's a that's a nice bit. I, I think Trousty's response is is quite fascinating, especially given the double potential double meaning of it. Um, mm-hmm. But but you're right. As far as uh, true wit and playfulness, this is the 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 Thorgrim making fun of his son. Uh, that's the one moment of true playfulness in the whole saga. Yeah. So uh, yep. it fits our criteria. I think it can win easily. Absolutely. All right. Congratulations, Thorgrim. Oh, glory. Now, this saga, you know, we've been complaining that maybe there are not a lot of notable witticisms and uh, maybe not some uh, all the best bloodshed that we could ever ask for in this saga, mm-hmm. but we do have plenty of candidates for outlawry. Yeah, it's quite a rogues gallery this time. <laughs> it's out. full of them. Um, there are four in particular that I've identified um, mm-hmm. mostly from the same family. And yeah. <laughs> one person that I think, uh, without doubt, is the the true villain. Um, but let's start and talk mm-hmm. about Thorgrim. Thorgrim 
Thorgrim, you want to start with? Well, yeah, because he's okay. He kills Grim, um, kind of violently, and more importantly, <laughs> even though he kind of, although the in the presence of the king, who acknowledges yes. that he was right to do so. Yes. So I, I forgive him for that. Uh, his true crime and the thing that has Kettle uh, constantly sending men into Iceland to get him is uh, stealing Olaf. Right? Olaf is in an arranged situation. She's supposed well, to be married yes. away. He breaks up the wedding party, turns out the lights, and takes her off to Iceland. So you're saying that he's the Wesley to her buttercup. This is a this is a romantic oh, he certainly story. Is. He certainly is. How how do we outlaw a man for following his heart? Uh, besides which, I just want to point out that. Uh, our usual technicality. Yeah. That crime takes place in Norway. It does, so we can't do anything with Thorgrim. And you know what else? Mm-hmm. I really like Thorgrim. He's a nice guy. Yeah, I like him too. I don't want to punish he him. He doesn't do anything wrong. So. Uh, Kettle, on the other hand, if Kettle weren't in Norway oh, yeah. throughout the saga, he would be a strong contender. Yeah. He's kind of a jerk. What a jerk. I mean, just sending assassins uh, one upon the other, including his own sons, yeah. men who are of much uh, sterner moral stuff than he is. Yeah. And constantly throwing uh, his daughter around as this some kind of this little uh yes. treat for other men. Yes, she's offered to most of the men in the saga that she's not related yeah. to. Which which again fits into the, the whole agenda of the saga. Look at how right. cruel this guy is and how he treats his daughter as right. an inhuman right. thing. But again, he's he's off on a technicality yeah. because he never actually enters Iceland or or yeah. does anything there. So. so let's get down to brass tacks. We've got mm-hmm. uh Yokel and Einar. Now they're particularly mm-hmm. offensive. Um, for their many ambushes and their, their ridiculous attacks mm-hmm. on, on Vigeland. And, um, you know, in, in prepping for just kind of reminding myself of everything that happened, you know, I know we talked about them wanting to seduce Olaf. Um, but when I was reading something, uh, this evening before mm-hmm. we started recording, um, someone pointed out that they don't next actually want to seduce, which implies a, a complicitousness on the part of Olaf. Um, they might want to just rape her. Right, it's not. It's ambiguous in the text. Um, yeah, we said last time that Einar sort of takes for granted that his seduction will be successful, um, and seduction is the term he uses. That he's going to, he wants to sleep with her as kind of a lover. Um, well, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to look at that term. Uh, I would like to look at that term in yeah, the yeah. original Icelandic and see kind of what the contexts are and how that that same word is used elsewhere. Right. Um, um, but it is. I mean, it is an ambiguous scene. And of course, uh, Olaf reassuring her servant, who's dressed as her, uh, that yeah. she'll be there to make sure nothing goes wrong, nothing happens to her, certainly yeah. suggests that for Olaf, at least, uh, this is being read as sexual aggression. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yes, absolutely so, um, villains. Of course, nothing ever comes of it. Um, it's a threat, but they never actually follow through on it. And in fact, well, they, they would if they could. Well, but they, they sort of piddle able. their breeches and run away when she, uh, when Olaf sort of yes. jumps out in a black cloak with a sword. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, nothing ever comes of that. So they're, they're pretty villainous, mm-hmm. pretty dastardly, but I think they don't compare at all to their mother, who is really <laughs> the brains behind the operation. Right. She is the one driving this kind of constant attack against Vigeland, and she's the one that also abuses her daughter, both uh, – well, not both. That abuses her daughter emotionally, mm-hmm. mentally, um, and she's probably the most hateable woman I've seen in the sagas. She's definitely top three, um, and unlike her sons, uh, she's not a complete idiot. Uh, right. She's <laughs> – She's governed. She knows what she's doing. She's governed by just a kind of malevolent soul, right? She's just mm-hmm. a bad person. 
Uh, right. she's sort of operating through incompetence. Um, her sons are idiots. Uh, Hawken, who arrives after being sent over by Kettle, who I would say is also a candidate, by the way, for outlawry. Sure. Yeah. Um, you're right. Is another idiot who can't accomplish anything. Uh, although a good looking idiot, apparently. Uh, mm-hmm. but Thorbjorg is sort of working through these morons. Uh, but you don't get the impression that she herself is exceptionally stupid. She's just evil. She's just malevolent. Yeah. And I don't know, have we outlawed a, a female character yet? Um, oh, I really wish you hadn't asked me that. I don't think we have, actually. Yeah, I don't think we um, have either, though, uh, you know, our listeners can, can search the archives right, and tell us if we're us wrong. Correct us on that. Uh, but yeah, I think but, we're about uh, to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, the motive, it's the will behind mm-hmm. it. And Yokel and I are just too stupid to realize what yep. they're doing. Yeah. And ultimately, they're always well, operating under her guidance. Right. And ultimately, um, she's, Guilty of everything they're guilty of and so much more. Yeah. So I uh, I would propose we give her full outlawry I'm and uh, never see her again. Very comfortable with that. Bye-bye, Thorbjorg. Thing Men. All right. So uh, for Thing Men, uh, each of us, as always, will choose a follower from among those surviving the outlawry round. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, this time out, we flipped a coin, and um, it was over the phone, and so Andy flipped the coin and won. Now, I didn't flip um, it. I'm assuming that he did I so got honestly. An, I got an impartial um, partner that's to right, take that's care right, of that. That's right. You had one of your daughters uh, taking care of that for you, uh, and I'm sure that your daughter would never lie for you. No, uh, she would So wouldn't. you're going first. Yes. Um, what do you got? Well, you know, I was very shocked that I won the coin toss because I feel like I never win these. Yeah, things. I don't know that it's happened before. I feel like uh, it's generally me winning. I, uh, I feel like I deferred once, um, but I mm. I don't know when or where that happened. <laughs> so, uh, but one, once I won the coin toss, uh, my my stomach started churning a little bit because <laughs> <laughs> it, it's on. kind of a it's an awful decision to make, and here's why it's awful. Uh, we we chose the next saga that we're going to do, and. It's it's difficult. <laughs> I, and I'm thinking to myself, do I defer and secure the right to choose first when we do Vatensdala Saga, something a saga that I like a lot, and there are a lot of good Thingmen in there, mm-hmm. or do I make the move here and take the best Thingmen available in Vigland Saga? You spend way too much time thinking about this. I want to win. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's only in my own little head. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was kind of hard for me to decide because, like I said, Vatensdala has some really great characters who would make excellent Thingmen. Uh, Vigland Saga, not so much. Mm-hmm. As I see it, we've got three or maybe four choices in this saga. Now, mm-hmm. the the obvious one is Vigland. He is uh, first and foremost, he's quite handsome. <laughs> well, that's what I've heard. You know, he he's reasonably intelligent and uh, he's very. I haven't good heard with- that. He's very good with a sword or an axe and a shield. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I feel like he could be the face of my thingman. You know, he's my <laughs> spokesman. <laughs> he looks great in a suit. <laughs> there you go. Now he he also provides a, a kind of a sensitive and and patient spirit to the m- more rambunctious group that I think I've been collecting. Uh, <laughs> so that that might come in handy, uh, a voice of reason. Um, and lastly, he's also the titular character. So. There's some name recognition that we get by by choosing a guy like that. Mm-hmm. Now, then there's Trousty, the trusty brother Trousty. Mm-hmm. Now, I really like him much more than I thought I would. Um, and I would be happy to have him at my side in any battle or as my thingman. He's also a good counselor. He can give good advice. Um, and in that regard, he might be 
might be a good choice. And I, I would be happy to, to take a guy like that. I could do yeah, worse. No, I think, I think there's actually some evidence in the saga that he's kind of the, uh, the brains behind the operation. Yeah. That, that maybe. Uh, Vigland is obviously the more active man, but yeah. Trousty is the sort of more level head. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Trousty's also the one that says, you could kill, uh, Kettlerid's father. But he, uh, he says that's a bad idea. <laughs> he does throw the idea out there, though. Well, all right. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, he's he's a good counselor and he's also a pretty good poet if we mm-hmm. followed John's reading of the whole thing. I, I like to think of uh, Vigeland as a much more modern poet, but uh, take it what you will. Now, uh, the reason that I don't like Trousey, though, is he's just not remarkable enough and he doesn't accomplish mm-hmm. enough. And so I, I, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with him. Um, I could also take their father, Thorgrim. He's a more traditional saga character, and he's the kind of guy that we usually look for in terms of attitude and demeanor. But yep. I don't know. What does he do after stealing Olaf and fleeing to Iceland? Right. Most of his well, accomplishments... Well, that is fairly spectacular. It is, but it, those that are all in, in Norway. And if, if we're talking about Thingman, we're talking about who they are in Iceland, mm-hmm. first and foremost. And I don't know what kind of influence or pull he has in his region, and I don't know what he accomplishes. <laughs> to me, it seems like he doesn't accomplish very much at all, aside from having... Two pretty cool sons. The the last option I kind of throw in there is Holmkel, uh, oh. the father of Kettlerid. And it's more because I just like yeah. the guy. Yeah, he's that's, a genuinely – he's one of the first genuinely nice guys. Like I would <laughs> hang out with him <laughs> if I was going to look for a, a father-in-law. Uh, he's the kind of father-in-law I'd want. He seems to love his daughter and he's okay with the, the, the mm-hmm. potential son-in-law. He's a good guy. But he's also not the most brilliant thing man out there, you know? So. No, I think, um, when you think about Holmkill, you have to think about the, the moment when we learn that he knows, uh, that his daughter is in love with Vigland. Oh, yeah. Uh, reveals that he's known that Vigland and Trousty survived the battle in which his own sons were killed, mm-hmm. but has done nothing because he knew it would break his daughter's heart. Oh, yeah. Asks well, his, her his... what, asks her what she would have happen at this point. And when she says that she would marry Viglin and no one else, he rides out with a pouch of gold and a rune stick on which he has carved a recording of the entire conversation with his daughter yeah. and leaves that for Vigland. Yeah. I and mean, this guy is, you know, too good to be true as a father-in-law. Absolutely. And, and his affection for his daughter as a father with daughters, uh, it's admirable. He's the kind of guy that I mm-hmm. hope I could be. Uh, is he the best thingman for me? Nah, I don't know. Uh, some might say he's a little bit weak. You know, he's a little, yeah. a little too yeah. modern for the kind of, uh. Well, and uh, not, uh, not necessarily even, uh, ruler of the roost. I mean, he's, uh, you know, yes. Thorbjorg is allowed to operate with a free hand and he's sort of afraid to contradict her. Excellent point, which is why I would never choose Homekill as much as I would love him. Um, so here's what I'm going to do, John. I feel like Vatensdala Saga can be a win-win situation for me. If you take one guy, I'll take the other. Mm-hmm. So and it's possible we're going to target different guys. Mm-hmm. So I could get I away with getting, getting the guy that I want regardless of the situation. Mm-hmm. So either way, I know I'm leaving that one with a great thingman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vigeland Saga feels to me like a win-lose. You take Vigeland <laughs> and you win. Or you take someone else and lose, and I assume that would be Trousty. You might surprise me. So, so I'm going to try to get a, a notch in the wind column for me as I look forward to the quarter court when we evaluate our thingmen. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take Vigland here. I'm winning this round, and I'm counting on fate to carry me in the next one. 
What do you think of that? <laughs> well, I'm not terribly surprised. Um, I think Vigland is, is a valid choice. And sure. obviously there's always some cachet to taking the, uh, the eponymous figure, right? Mm-hmm. You sort of carry the name of the saga with you. I always like uh, the word titular better. For obvious reasons. You you feel free to like that. Um, I, on the other hand, am not an 11-year-old boy, uh, and so I will <laughs> go with eponymous. Um, but now I have to choose from among the remaining <laughs> figures. Uh, now, we've already discussed Holmkill and discussed why he is, although an admirable figure, is somewhat limiting as a thing man. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think he's an option for me. Uh, I agree with you. Thorgrim is uh, primarily impressive for this one spectacular act. And it is spectacular. Don't get me wrong. Right? Walks into a, a room full of men, all of whom are hostile to him, um, arranges for all the lights in the room to be extinguished at once, and then escapes with the would-be bride uh, before the lights can be relit. That's pretty good. Not uh, bad. But then nothing really comes of it after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's worth noting that Olaf, at various points in the saga, takes a very active hand in things. Um, I have taken um, a thing woman before in Alvesten's daughter, uh, and so I gave some serious thought to Olaf. Uh, I like that she dons the black cloak um, yeah. and turns the tables on her would-be attackers, yes. as you said, quite possibly uh, men who intend sexual assault, and she yeah. manages to not only scare them off but really freak them out. I don't know if you know this, but uh, after listening to the summary section, my wife suggested Olaf as a possible thingman. No, I didn't um, realize that. Oh, she um, did. And uh, my reply was, yeah, but she's really only good at feminine things. She's really a feminine figure oh, for this saga. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, black cloaks and, and swords are not traditionally uh, that's, the – That's uh, the one moment where she does something. Well, the the saga author yeah. makes a very, very strong point that mm-hmm. she is the model of modern f- Christian femininity. Right. She is good at sewing. She is good at house – Right. Let's not make She's, the mistake of thinking that, you know, modern always means more progressive, right? Exactly. Um, as we know, right, the, 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 the women of the Viking age had a much freer hand and uh, a much wider sort of social scope than Absolutely women of Christian right. Iceland, especially around the 15th and, century. And so the Christianization of Iceland is mm-hmm. not necessarily always a good thing for women. Right. Uh, but Olaf is ultimately, again, also not a sort of terribly – uh, significant character in the saga, apart from and, and what more would she do things happen thing, around you know? her, uh, and she reacts to events. It's a great scene, uh, but it doesn't necessarily a thing men make. Yeah. Uh, Trousty, on the other hand, and I, so I'm not going to surprise you because Trousty, yeah. I do believe that he's the brains of the operation between the two brothers. Uh-huh. Uh, he is the more accomplished poet uh, from a traditional poetry standpoint. His poetry is the sort of poetry that Snorri Sturluson would approve. Uh, well, the infamous well, Snorri Sturluson. Let's not get carried away. Uh, well, it's it's the sort of poetry that conforms to the the Edda's instructions on how to construct proper poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, it use it makes full use of kennings. Uh, it has sort of clever turns within the poem. Uh, as he points out, his brother's idea of a clever poem is to start and end with the name of the woman it's about. Um, I thought it was very that's, clever. <laughs> that's a very limited kind of clever. Uh, Trousty also, remember, uh, demonstrates his moral fortitude when he stops his brother from slaughtering, uh, Olaf and her husband in their bed toward the end of the saga. It's Trousty yep. who stays his hand and says, no, it's incumbent upon us to demonstrate that we are honorable men while we are guests in this man's house. Mm-hmm. 
Trousty, for all kinds of reasons, is a more admirable figure, I think, than Vigland. And so I am proud and pleased to have him for my thing man. Welcome aboard, Trousty Thorbrimson. Well, I think we both did very well, some better than others. Final rating. All right, now is our opportunity to evaluate the saga, to bring it all together and give our final ratings. Uh, John, I think you have the honors to go first here. Uh, what are you right. uh, giving this saga? Okay, um, I'm going to try to keep this brief. Uh, yeah, right. It, it never happens, but I like to say it. Uh, so I was surprised on a first reading how unexpected some of the action in this saga was. I mean, yeah. this is a story that conforms in almost every respect to what is at this point the very tediously familiar narrative pattern of the warrior poet sagas. Mm-hmm. And yet I was continually surprised by the directions the narrative took. Now, sometimes that was less than ideal, since some of the surprises were what felt to me like intrusions from other traditions. Uh, like, as we said, the continental romances, right? Uh, things that are imperfect matches to the overall tone of the saga. Um, so that lengthy digression on two hearts in love, for example. Yeah. Uh, Andy, I know you were more forgiving of that part of the saga. Uh, for Absolutely. me, they're a reminder that the, the age of, or the, the golden age of saga writing is at its end when Vigilant oh, Saga is written. Look at you. Um, and the conservative reader in me rebelled at lines like, they loved each other so ardently all their lives that if they could but do as their hearts told them, Neither ever wanted to be without the other from the time they first laid eyes on each other. <laughs> now, that's a line that might give a reader of Harlequin romances the vapors. Oh, you're hilarious. But it doesn't put a frothy head on my ale mug. <laughs> you um, are a man of a certain time, that's for sure. <laughs> now, my second and third readings of the sagas were more favorable, I have to say. Uh, there's a lot to enjoy here, uh, especially if you skip over the paragraphs on love. Oh, uh, those are now, particularly, I enjoy the well-drawn secondary characters, right? Now, as I've said, Trousty became a particular favorite of mine, but Thorgrim, Olaf, Kettlerid, and Holmkill are all given space to develop as personalities. Yes. I like that Vigland has moments of real personal crisis. Uh, that scene of him standing over the sleeping Olaf and Thord and slowly drawing his sword is just mm-hmm. a great moment. Oh, yeah. The tension uh, builds in this one quite nicely. Yes, it really does. Uh, to the point where you really do wonder at the end whether he's about to sort of destroy everything. Oh, yeah. Uh, in that moment. Uh, now, I have to or, say, the or, villains... or when he's, when he's going out and, and he encounters or could encounter, uh, uh, Homekill on the road. That's a, right. a, a scene that is full of, of tension. What right. are they going to do? How is he going to react? We know, right, that traditionally at this moment you have physical conflict, armed conflict. Yeah. Uh, and so, he sort of narrowly avoids that conflict by hiding. The um, wisdom of Vigland, my thing. Well, uh, well uh, and Trousty <laughs> saying, hey, we could kill him right now, but it would be a bad idea. Uh, now, I have to say, the villains in this saga, I think, lack differentiation, uh, which is a shame. The, the best sagas have antagonists as complex as the protagonists, and in the very best ones, those lines get smudged or are never really drawn at all, and we're not mm-hmm. sort of rooting for one side or the other. It's simply two sides in conflict. This is a saga with good good guys versus cartoons. Mm, uh, that's fair. And, f- and from a formalistic perspective, that's not a sign of a sophisticated writer. Mm. Uh, but what is a sign of sophistication is the author's merging of the warrior poet tradition with the more usual epic saga narrative. Right? And we haven't really seen this in the other war- warrior poet sagas. Viglund's saga is a story of several clans, a three-generation feud centered around Thorgrim's abduction of Olaf and Kettle's wedding celebration. 
Uh, we have cross-plotting. We have episodic narrative, a respectable body count, not a great one, but a respectable one, and a deep understanding of the framing elements by which the sagas work. This is a saga writer, I think, at the end of the saga writing age with a deep knowledge of the literary traditions he's partaking in, and I have to respect that as much as I grumble at his experimentations with romances. Mm. I'm giving this saga a seven. Seven. I All might right. not have gone that high if we weren't reading this at the tail end of five poet sagas. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, but there you are, seven. Now, I, uh, I I promised myself, and I think right before we started this, I promised you that I wouldn't say much uh, during the rating section. <laughs> um, and uh, I didn't but, believe you. But like you, I'm going to keep it quote-unquote brief. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the more I thought about this saga and the kind of response it typically gets and, and the response that you actually echoed – uh, the more frustrated I got. Uh, if you remember, we spoke about this at the beginning of the summary section, um, but there's a little bit more to add. I- I'm going to offer one example that is fairly typical. Um, that, and I think it captures the essence of the critical response to Beagland Saga nicely. Um, it's also quite a doozy, and I don't know if you ran across this one. This also goes back to the 19th century, your era. I call them John's glory days. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, my wayward youth. Yeah, you remember running down the street with your buddy Gudbrand Vigfusson in uh, the <laughs> 1870s. <laughs> so in, in 1878... Um, Playing at hoops and kick the can. <laughs> <laughs> in 1878, he called Vigeland's saga a feebly told love story. Again, sounds like you. <laughs> uh, for him, it is written at the end of the saga age when he says, the very dregs of the tradition have been used up. Ooh. Now, sagas Boy, I got like, to learn more about this guy. He's uh, He and I are on a wavelength. <laughs> I know. Now, sagas like Vigeland's saga, uh, which are pure fabrications, as he says, uh, are characterized by a poverty of diction and most plentiful lack of true fancy or imagination, with few traces of the fresh vigor which the poorest <laughs> genuine sagas possess. Now... <laughs> Those are some of the harshest words I've ever read concerning the sagas. He seems to have a very specific set of criteria for what makes a good saga, age mm-hmm. being near the top of the list. He loves a Cormac saga. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Now, sadly, most critics seem to agree with Vigfusson, though uh, one notable alternative can be found in W.A. Craigie's very brief assessment of the saga. Um, this is also, I think, late 19th century, early 20th. I can't quite remember. Mm-hmm. Um, he says um, that uh, Vigeland's saga is simply and attractively told and is obviously the work of a man with some taste and reading. <laughs> now, this seems oh, to... Oh, yes, that is a ringing endorsement, isn't it? Well, it seems to agree with... A uh, simple kind tale of, with some taste. Uh, some taste. Uh, a man of some taste <laughs> and reading, which I think echoes what you said at the end of your uh, your reading. Yes. Um, that I, I would agree. This is a guy that's read a lot, and he has a sense of how to put these things together. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to argue with the saga critics who claim that the saga is too late to consider seriously or that it's a more remarkable that this or that this saga is more remarkable for its efforts to pretend to be a saga at all um that has to be the case because the saga comes from an age when saga literature was no longer being produced at the rate as in the 13th or early 14th century vigeland saga is a product of a different time with a different aesthetic and a different agenda driving the narrative so does that make it a poorly constructed narrative uh with little value not at all, I would argue. 
<laughs> so I'm sorry. Do you even need me here? Should I just wander off for a while? Or are you going to no, argue I, with I, yourself for long? I just need another uh, 15 minutes or so. <laughs> so you know, saga purists who are going to praise a like you, I would call you a saga purist because oh, you wow. praise a a classical period of saga writing, mm. uh, and people like you are going to reject Vigelin saga as post classical. You know, and it's you c- it's it's rare that people like you is meant as a compliment. It's <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and you can you can uh, praise the classical period all you want. But I think dating sagas, just like categorizing them as a dangerous game, you know, most sagas come to us mm-hmm. from the 14th and 15th century manuscripts, sure. and that complicates the issues quite a bit. We don't know when these things were written, but we oh, can but guess. I think with this one, because of the internal evidence, we can oh, yeah, uh, we make know. a fairly this strong one. case for a late date. Yes. And regardless of its temporal relationship to other sagas, I'm really interested in what Vigeland saga is on its own terms and in its own context. So when we consider it as a product of a specific moment in the development of Icelandic culture and history, as a point of comparison for the student of saga literature, I, I think we find that Vigeland Saga has a lot to offer. Now, I've never taught this one before, but I can't imagine not teaching it now that I've read it. Whether we're looking for points of contrast with other sagas, or, or for examples of Christianity and romance literature's influence on the shape of the sagas and the culture that produced them, Vigeland Saga has a lot of value, in my opinion. The poem at the end of the saga is enough to warrant a good score from me. I mean, where else in saga literature are you going to find a narrator commenting on the story itself? So, John, I'm going to echo the end of the saga by saying, thanks be to the one who composed the stories and wrote them (laughs) down. I think this is a great saga. I'm going to give this one a solid eight. Amen. All right. Mm -hmm. So you're high, you're high hatting me on this one. Hi hat uh, you, buddy. I like it. So uh, a seven from me and eight from Andy. It's a fifteen total. So that's a good very score. respectable score. I think that puts it uh what third or fourth place on our uh, list. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. All it's uh, right. it's pretty good. Definitely the highest score we've given a Warrior Poet Saga. Oh, is that right? Wow. Well, you mm-hmm. know what? It's it's uh it gives me everything that I'm looking for from the sagas, and I think like you said, after reading uh all the other ones, this one it's it's turns the unexpected things that happen in it. They, they work for us, maybe yep. because we're so bored with the other ones. <laughs> All right. So uh, next time we'll be back with uh, Vatan's Dalla Saga. In the meantime, you can keep Very up exciting. with us on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod, on Facebook, Saga Thing Podcast, or visit our website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Our email address is sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. And there's any number of other ways you can find us or talk to us. I don't know. <laughs> Looking forward to uh, talking about Vatan's Dalla Saga. All right. Bye for now. That the scene he can fuss. <laughs> Line. <laughs> <laughs>